Hello, Cachimbonas. I am so excited to be bringing you episode 33, season 5 of Radio Cachimbona. Radio Cachimbona is an abolitionist podcast that audio archives state repression and fierce migrant resistance in the southern Arizona borderlands and breaks down case law and politics from a leftist perspective. It's hosted by Yvette Borja, who is a first-generation professional whose parents are Salvadoran immigrants, and she prioritizes Uplifting the Voices and Histories of Central Americans. Hi, that is me. This episode is one that I've been really excited about releasing for a while. I was really honored to have Professor Arlene Davila of NYU to discuss her book, Latinx Art. Latinx Art is a season five lit review pick. So if you want to learn more about the book and hear me discuss it with Jen Sipas, a fellow Salvi living in New York, then you should become a patron at patreon.com slash Radio Cachimbona. Joining the Patreon is the best way to support this independent podcast and make it sustainable for me to actually keep putting out content because this is a very labor-intensive process, yes, of love, but still labor-intensive nonetheless. And for three, five, ten dollars a month, you can receive early access to episodes like these and exclusive access to the lit reviews. Latinx Art was such a rich text that I devoted two episodes to it: the regular lit review and then this special author interview with Professor Davila. We discussed what defines an artivist how Latinx art challenges the field's status quo, and why it's important to honor and recognize Latinx artists and the work that they create. Shout out to Evelyn Rio, who is the newest patron. Thank you so much for supporting the podcast. I appreciate each and every single one of the patrons. A completely free way to support the podcast, because I do know these are tough economic times is to leave a rating and review wherever you listen, whether that be Apple or Spotify. Those help so much and always brighten my day. You can follow Radio Cachimbona at Radio Cachimbona on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Often continue the conversation there. And that is it. I hope that you enjoy this episode. Bye, Cachimbonas. So hello, Cachimbonas. I'm very excited today to have Professor Arlene Davila on today to talk about her book, Latinx Art. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. To start off, I wanted to ask, what inspired you to write this book and study the positionality of Latinxes in the professional art world? Yes. First of all, I want to thank you for the work you do. I know you've been uh, creating really wonderful podcasts that uplift our community. It was a bit hard to find a time, and I wanted to just appreciate your efforts and the opportunity, right, uh, to speak about my work. I think that what I did had a lot to do with, right, uh, being in the art world, being in New York City, being in academia for forever, being in Latinx studies uh, for so long, and it was it was a need. Um, I found myself being part of and witnessing a growing artivist movement around the, mm. the recognition of Latinx art. And I felt that 
people in the art history world were behind, I would say, right, um, in terms of the conversation on Latinx studies. Latinx studies, we have had a good 20 years, right, where different fields like history, anthropology, literature are quite advanced and recognized. And there's conversations around Latinx creativity, Latinx literature, Latinx history. And in the art world, I felt that that conversation was really lagging behind it has a lot to do with the whiteness of that field, right? Mm -hmm. So as someone who's not part of that space, yet I was kind of an interlocutor. I started mm -hmm. my the art world many years ago. I worked at uh, in museums and institutions, and mm -hmm. I had been touch with many artists in New York City. But I was kind of an outsider to that world. And as a result, I could intervene and contribute perhaps what a lot of colleagues in the art world were sharing, but perhaps didn't dare to say or couldn't say or didn't have the language to say because of the discipline was so we didn't have space for those conversations, right? Right. So so I think that the book is is the result of of my frustration, perhaps, with being in spaces around uh, art historical spaces where the conversation of Latinx art was, was really uh, frustrating, right, to say the least. Yeah. And that's basically, you know, what the book is, is basically, I feel that what I say in the book is nothing new, right? Anyone in the art world, anybody who's part of this community will recognize I'm not discovering anything. I'm just echoing and documenting, right? Mm -hmm a community and a cultural field and, and its limitations. Can you define the term artivist and explain how the Latinx artivist movement has failed to gain Latinx art visibility? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I don't kind of do that in the book. You know, I'm, I'm realizing, oh, my God, I kind of used the, the term and didn't kind of, you know, but it is it, it also speaks to the ways in which this term has become uh, has been a currency, right? In Latinx studies, of course, we have to pick out of the work of Chela Sandoval and Gisela La Torre, who applied the term to think about the work of Judy Baca. But also, oh, uh -huh. it become, you know, Wilson Valentin uses it to think about a lot of the Saida activists and artists uh, in New York City. So it's a term that has had a lot of use in the Latinx and Chicanx, but also in the people of color community. Mm. And, and I think it's, it's, it's a term that is very current because I would argue that you cannot be a person of color in the art world or not be an artivist. Mm. Mere presence, right? Right. Engages and, and summons an activism and a challenge to the art world. So it's, it's, that, it's that recognition that, uh, you know, that any artist who is person of color in the spaces by their mere presence, if not their actions and their work, is 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 acting upon it, right? It's challenging the status quo, and is demanding transformation, right? So mm -hmm. it's it's a mix of artists and activism that is embodied in the just in the mere presence and, and existence of of Latinx artists and people of color art artists in, in the art world. And that's kind of why it's worth studying Latinx art and buying it and and commenting on it, right? is because Latinx art forces conversations of race, class, and gender to the front in ways that are otherwise not happening in the art world. And that's why, you know, Latinx artists are, like you said, artivists, because their mere presence in the professional art world is disruptive. Yeah. I mean, and this doesn't have to mean that all Latinx art has let's say political content right that's not what I right 
but rather that um, to, to say Latinx art and to claim that space, right, is an intervention. And it's an important intervention that we didn't that we didn't have. Like this is a space where Latin American arts serve as the stand-in, right, mm-hmm. for any person of Latin American background in the whole continent in that in the United States. And and there was really no room for recognition for Latinx, Latino, Latina people at all, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that to me was perhaps one of the big surprises, as I said, coming from the from Latino studies, because we do right reference Latino history or you know, in marketing, Latinx consumers or political science, uh, Latino voters, you know, there's so many constructs in which we generalize the existence of uh, Latino something, right? Mm-hmm. When we talked about the art world, we didn't have that reference. And in fact, a lot of my interviews when I was doing interviewing people in New York City, when I highlighted Latino, Latina, Latinx, they were like, what are you talking about? Like, mm-hmm. people didn't have a reference and immediately pointed to Latin American artists as the only reference that was the only reference right and because many of the galleries uh, that I interviewed and many of the people in the art world had worked with or had knowledge of Latin American artists that is a result of course of the fact that the category of Latin American art had had uh, 20 or so years of advocacy collectors mm. researchers scholars advocates stakeholders and so forth and therefore there was some minimal recognition of Latin American art however compromised or limited it was, but very little around Latinx. And you remember somebody said, oh, that that that's that to me signals the ghetto, right? Like I remember oh somebody said, like, wow, that's that's where we're at, right? Yeah. Where people imagine that that's not, you would never want to use that 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 category because that's what people think of. Mm-hmm. People don't think of creativity. People think of it's a devalued uh tag. So we don't want to use it, right? So how important it is now that now we're in a moment when we have curators and archivists and stakeholders and also artists, right, using that label to claim a space in the art world and challenge that invisibility of Latinx art. Yeah, I I appreciate you highlighting how there's been different pathways with Latin American art and Latinx art. Uh, That was one of the most fascinating parts of the book for me. And The line that stuck out with me the most uh, when explaining why there doesn't seem to be a reciprocity where in these Latin American art galleries, they're not showing Latinx artists. And someone said it's because they when they hear Latinx, they think that those are the children of the people who's clean who clean their houses. And that one struck home for me because my mom cleans houses and I was like, I know exactly what you're talking about. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Can you explain like the history of that separation between Latin American art and Latinx art? Yeah. I mean, where to start, right? I mean, (laughs) we have to think about empire and U.S. imperialism in the region and the use of Latin America as a Cold War category, if you will, right, in the 1950s, but even before that, right, in 1920s, 30s, you had all these good good neighbor policies and investments in the art and culture Mm -hmm. as as a policy, as a U.S. part of the U.S. policy across the continent, right? Mm -hmm. In the 1950s, you had the Cold War really uh, being accompanied by even more investment for the arts and culture, mm. and also the creation of Latin American investment in Latin American studies. And so, so there's a history, and um, 
I have a colleague of mine, Miriam Basilio at NYU, who is doing a history of Latin American art at MoMA. Mm. She rightly shows why the cannot think of uh, in these institutions without thinking about Latin American art was, was central to the collecting imaginaries and also the U.S. imaginaries of the region. Mm. Uh, but it was, but it was, it was part of this larger um, uh, geopolit geopolitics, right? Uh, policies. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, we have to also think more more recently about the ways in which, especially our by right, the creation of contemporary art markets, uh, Sotheby's, the, the first Latin American art auction, the development of auctions, the development of categories, not only of, of collecting, but also of thinking, of research in academia, and also of collecting for auction houses. All of that, all that apparatus, right, has a history uh, that mm -hmm. stems 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. And in the 90s was globalized because with our Basel, what you also have is the mm. development of cost of the cosmopolitan global expansion yes. of the art market mm -hmm. as a space around which Latin American countries have been creating national brands, right? Mm -hmm. Actually, an ex-student of mine, Julia Borea from Peru, um, just published an, a fascinating book about Lima's contemporary arts. And mm. It must, should be a must-read for anybody trying to understand the, the, the investments that, and the role that contemporary art has played in the nationalist cultural policies and tourist politics policies yeah. of Latin American countries, right? Mm -hmm. so, so all of that feeds into the creation of global elites, right? Mm -hmm. and, and global collecting elites that begin to recognize the category of Latin American art and feed into that category and international art market. So I wanted to document that because, you know, otherwise we tend to think, oh, just Latin American art is better, right? Mm -hmm. yes. No, there's just, you know, a, a, a whole apparatus that's been institutionally created as a result of investment stakeholders and real investments of capital in, in creating, right, the, the Latin American art market uh, or Latin American art as a field. So, um, and, and and I wanted just to realize how how made up all that is, right? And how yeah. in fact we invested the same attention, right? In creating uh, institutions, in creating stipends and all kinds of investments and to motivate and influence, right? Creativity in US Latinx sector, we wouldn't be here, right? If we yeah. have in having institutions that put, or, or or even universities right hiring in US Latinx art right that you know we wouldn't we wouldn't be at a point where according to Adriana Savala and other scholars you have maybe one if not two nationwide scholars teaching Latinx art I mean that's wow. like scandalous right yeah so, so again it's that notion of how Latinx art this movement to me is an intervention to simply say, hey, we have to invest and create the resources that are necessary to ensure that this field is as robust, right, as any other field that is uh, commonly summoned, used to archive organized exhibitions or distribute resources in the art ecosystem. Yeah, I was really struck by how much this transnational elite collector class was central to value making in art and especially um, with Latin American art, you know, like these experiences that you're mentioning, like Art Basel that have been popping up across Latin America are 
really like sanitized playgrounds for this transnational elite. I was struck so much by how, for example, you explained that buying a piece of Cuban art on the island gives it like it inflates its value by a lot of money, which as compared to like that same piece being sold in the U.S. Um, And I think what that shows is like the value making is this like foreign tourist experience that these art collectors are paying for. Yeah, or the other example of the counter, the counter to that is um, I remember the collector that could have gone to the artist studio in Buenos Aires, but chose to buy the piece in our Basel. Um, right. The gallery went to our Basel. In, um, at that time, I, I don't know if they still do that, but probably, yes, Buenos Aires was subsidizing a lot of the galleries to go to all these international art fairs. So they had that incentive, right? Being incentivized instead of having to pay all that money, right? The government of Buenos Aires. So by buying it, the value that buying that same artwork in our Basel, because mm-hmm. you could purchase in our Basel and, it, and the artist shown in our Basel and how that then creates also value. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's part of that strategies, right? Of yeah. how um, people on the know, people in the know, right? <laughs> uh, and the exactly. people in the know is oftentimes not us, right? So, but but that's, you know, I hope that I provided a glimmer that helps people appreciate how made up, right? How it all, the, the emperor has no clothes, mm-hmm. right? And how just like that, we who want to uplift Latinx art communities um, and our communities um, could, could be uplifting our communities by actually, right? Investing in our artists, uh, mm-hmm. collecting our artists, um, ensuring that that they have uh, resources needed, uh, ensuring that the opportunities are given to our artists, you know? Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that, you know, we, we still live in a world where um, the mainstream world thinks we're all the same and they're going to do a Latin show and that's it. Like right now, I'm going to provide an example of, you know, there's, there's right now um, a triennial in the Bronx, a Latin American art triennial in the Bronx that I believe doesn't have any Bronx artists or Latinx artists. Oh my goodness. No. You know, like, but, 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 but that's, you know, I'm like, wow, you know, I used I used to think that, you know, you know, in the book I say, you know, go to the Bronx, go to the Longwood, go to all these, you know, spaces to like find Latinx artists. I'm like, oh my God, not even that, right? Because, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, that was shocking to see how that, you know, even in, spaces allegedly dedicated to Latinx art, they're showing Latin American art a lot of times. Because the thing you have to remember is like cities like New York, right? There's so many artists, right? So there's that 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 pressure to be shown and to be seen mm-hmm. and showed in New York, no matter where, right? So yeah. we really push in our community and and you know and and I I, I talk about so many so many institutions, right? Museo del Bar is a very good instance, right? Mm-hmm. Of, a, of a really good space that where that that led to the transformation of its mission, right? Museo del Bar is Latin American. And, but let's not go into that example. There's so many others, right? Mm-hmm. Hence the need to, to to sort of say, hey, let's let's ensure that we have spaces that focus on, on Latinx artists, right? To ensure that that they're not overseen, right? That they're not so similarly because curators don't know them. You know, curators, you know, will put up a yeah. show, that's older friends, and the networks are already 
-hmm. right? Latin American or this or that, or people that have moved from Latin America here to go to school. Those networks on, mm -hmm. are very, very strong, right? And it takes oftentimes more research and to get out of the networks of, you know, of MFA programs mm -hmm. or or gallery friends, friends to really meet and, ex and, and meet and, and highlight Latinx artists, which are all over us, right? Yeah. Why is it that you chose to focus on living and working artists instead of legacy artists? Oh, because I wanted to show the problem. I wanted to show Ultimately, I am, the book is an ethnography, which means that I'm documenting what I see, mm -hmm. what I experience, and interviews, right? Mm -hmm. In the now and in the present. And what I provide is kind of a little uh, microsystem, right, of a larger political economy of culture and a larger political economy of art markets that lead to racialized exclusion. Mm -hmm. And the only way to do that, I mean, you could do that historically, right? But there's nothing like the yeah. here and now to get the actual, right, the, the, the quotes, right, and the way in which people think about these artists, right, that are so evocative, right? Oftentimes when you do history, like, you don't capture that, right? Because that, that those stories are nowhere to be found, if you will, right? Mm -hmm. They're not part, like, the, 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 race, the racial scripts that dominate the art world are not part of the historical record. I don't know of any studies of actually that would be an interesting study, you know, or all histories of, you know, of, so I, I think that we need to do more of that, right. Is to, to really do studies of the molecules, if you will, of the movers and shakers, the, the racial, the class backgrounds, why are people thinking this way? Why are there, and, and that's what I was hoping to do by, by focusing on the present. It's also the methodology that is most useful were more natural to me. I was trained as an anthropologist. My previous six books were all ethnographers, right? Mm. And I have had, you know, if you know my work, you know that I've always been fascinating with exposing power mm -hmm. and looking up, right? My, you know, mm. it, I, I think about my work as ethnographies of power, mm. whereby instead of looking at, uh, looking down, you know, looking at uh, our communities that are, how they're victimized. I'm always looking at who are the perpetrators. Right. How are they, um, how are these uh, spaces of capitalism, whether it's advertising or developers or are contributing, right, to racial exclusions in the, in, the, in creative economies. Um, so I've done research on tourism. I've done research mm -hmm. on marketing. I've done research on urban design. I've done research on fashion, urban development, as I said. So, and, and always with those intentions. So this book to me, it comes from that trajectory too, right? It's not only about like being, because I've been in New York City and know a little bit of the art world. And I was annoyed at art historians' conversations around, but also because this is very much what I've been doing for the past 20 years. And in mm -hmm. fact, a lot of my discoveries in the art world are no different than perhaps um, similar dynamics that I found when I was doing work on creative economies of tourism mm. or other types of creative economies, because it goes back to the racist underpinnings, the racist and classist underpinnings of, of culture when it becomes a creative industry. Mm. Any type of culture, whether it's fashion, right, artesanías, 
whenever you begin to sort of like marry culture and capitalism through creative industries, you have similar exclusions that are not dissimilar to what I, I, I documented or Latinx, Latinx art. Mm. I don't know if this sounds too theoretical or too like vague, but you know. No, well, it's, me too. that's what I appreciate about your work is that you do take these large concepts and you apply them to specific aspects of culture, like the art world or fashion. Uh, I think it makes these processes more concrete, actually. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that that's, you know, uh, all I offer in this book is perhaps um, a documentation with the hope that um, that things change, right? And, yeah. and I always say that I want to be proven wrong and I, I want my work to be irrelevant. Right. And in it, I, I hope that when people read this book in five years from now, 10 years from now, they'll look at, at it and say, oh my God, that's not the case now. This author was, you know, was not hopeful. You know, things have been, you know, transformed and she she was just tripping, right? <laughs> I would love that. I would that love would to Ah, I would love for someone to write a similar ethnography of the art world in New York City and find very different outcomes to what I found. Right. Your book has an appendix in the back of Latinx artists, and you explain that you didn't consult with them about whether they identified as Latinx because you noted that that identifying, that imposed identifying happens you know, on the part of art schools and museums and universities and curators, and it doesn't involve mutual consultation. Uh, can you explain that choice more? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, in, in any space, uh, first of all, I, I think of uh, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latine, Hispanic, all these categories, right, are constructed categories that are, mm -hmm. that are strategic, right? Yeah. And of course, you know, the same term, just just like Many people do not identify as Latinx. They don't identify as Latine or Hispanic or Latino or Latina or Mexicano or Chicanx or, you know, you know what I mean, right? Mm -hmm. so, so that goes back to the fact that that we do through maybe research or interviews or whatever, when, you, when we have the opportunity to have more thoughtful conversations with different artists and representations. But ultimately, strategically, for the purposes of claiming space, mm -hmm. claiming resources, mm -hmm. Categories are foundational, right? The construct of Latin American art, right, is a very good example, right? How it has been used to claim endowed chairs, uh, wings of, of, of museums, right, and so forth. So, so I see these labels as useful for thinking about larger conversations, just to start having the conversation, right? And that's why the, the list has people that I would consider Latinx, that I would put on a show, uh, but but many there's so many others that are right that yeah uh, and and I say that I'm like this is just for you to start thinking you know with mm -hmm. idea like what would you put here and one and for for us to get to think about because that was another issue that I I always heard people describing as oh it's too complex right what are you talking about I'm like how is it that we talk about Latino voters as I said earlier right. <laughs> or Latino consumers or Latino people generally, and when we get to Latino art, it's too complex. Like, give me a freaking break, right? Yeah. Uh, of course we're complex, but we are by like, creating these labels. We're advancing these labels in order to begin to bring presence and address an exclusion 
and begin to have more sophisticated conversations about the complexity of our population, right? For instance, you know, how we need to have Afro-Latinx artists, how we need to have indigenous Latinx artists, how we need to really address the diversity around region, right? Region, mm -hmm. so important, right? We Somehow when we have Latinx art shows, we think New York City, maybe Chicago and LA, right? Yeah. How do we begin to really address, uh, use this label as a tool to address absences? Mm. Uh, which is, you know, what Carmen Ramos invites us to do, you know, in her very uh, important intervention on Las, uh, the Americas show that she did at the Smithsonian, right? It's, it's just the start of a conversation. So no, I don't, colors, when we use these labels, we don't go, right, and interview people. Can I use, you know, because <laughs> no, right? It's just, just, just like when you go to the census and you then invite uh, tell everybody, oh, did you really identify as Latino? Because we're going to use you as an aggregate, right? That's right. just not part of the methodological component, but also it's not politi politically strategic either, right? Yeah. Uh, however, I think it's important to use these labels with the humbleness, right? Yeah. The humbleness that we don't assume what they are, right? And, 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 and we don't make assumptions, but we use them to ask more questions even, right? Yeah, I appreciate that idea about humility and in terms of trying to decipher these categories and who is included, like you ask the reader to think about why is it that Haitian Americans and artists like Basquiat are not read or coded as Latinx? And I think um, thinking about the category, and like you said, using it to address exclusion can be a way to learn about populations that you wouldn't have, you know, initially imagined as under that category. Absolutely. And, you know, and, and on regards to uh, Haitians, but also Jamaicans and other Haitians mm -hmm. uh, and other, uh, especially Black Latinx, I feel that that conversation is getting more currency now. I want to uh, highlight the work of Tatiana Flores in furthering this conversation. Um, the Latinx and Latin American Visual Culture Journal, which everybody should be reading, had a wonderful dossier around Afro-Latinx art edited by Yelena Rodriguez, um, a Dominican, Dominican from the Bronx artist, where Haitian artists were front and center. And so I think that that absolutely, right, since I wrote the book, there that, that conversation is more advanced. And I'm hoping that more people are in fact, right, that that's not even a question, right, of course, right? Uh, Latinx art uh, is not reduced to race or language, uh, and we're not going to mm -hmm. reproduce those kind of whitewashing uh, limitations that were oftentimes reproduced in the very construct of Latin American art. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. And there has been an ebb and flow of funding and resources for Latinx art, and it's mostly an ebb. How can we create long-lasting institutions that celebrate and support Latinx art? <laughs> First of all, I don't know when you say like money for Latin. I don't see it. You know, I mean, maybe <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's never been a flow. So it's like, no, <laughs> it's just an I, I don't see it. Maybe there's a little trickling, but yeah, <laughs> not at all. I would never Fair enough. that because because research has shown that uh, Latinx uh, people have the lowest levels of philanthropic um, uh, Giving, uh, receive the lowest levels of philanthropic giving. Interesting. Oh yeah, no, there's there's you could you could research online and and find that uh, it's a concern across the board, really. But but yeah, um, I I, I want to say that what I do find, uh, I guess from my perspective, uh, having founded the Latinx Project at NYU, mm -hmm. 
so difficult to, uh, I mean, I started with a, with a Twitter account and really, right, we didn't even have space or offices or nothing. And we still don't have a designated space for galleries. We're mm-hmm. constantly trying to jockey with university to give us borrow space here and there. Um, I, th- I think that the, the, the most difficult thing is the, the actual brick and mortar space, right? Mm. The significance yeah. because- Especially um, in New York. Because we have like Instagram, we have all of this, right? Virtual presence, but we need to have access to institutions mm-hmm. that where people can gather, where people can have a lasting face-to-face interactions where exhibitions and uh, events can be held and documented. And that I really, that's my biggest concern is that I see a rise of Latinx, this and that, but all of our institutions, especially across U.S. cities, are scrambling for space. Um, Most of us are affected by gentrification and displacement. Mm -hmm. Artists are being uh, kicked out of cities and their own neighborhoods and legacy neighborhoods. City uh, 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 cultural institutions that had uh, city-owned space are being told that now they have to share space with more institutions instead of having their own designated space. I am very concerned with how the struggle for space and, mm. and it brings the attention to the fact that we cannot talk about the art world in isolation from urban policies, Yeah, the ways in which our cities are organized, how we think of private property, how we develop affordable housing, public housing, and how we we make access to non for uh, to, to, to spaces for, for our communities, right? Because we we, we cannot let the, the private real estate spe- speculation uh, continue because we'll all disappear. And uh, I, yeah. I I think that we need to be very all of us who are artivists should also be urbanists and activists mm. involved in anti gentrification, anti displacement, and housing equity. Yes, all connected. It really is. Yeah, I really appreciated you drawing those connections with like the Art Basel events that are happening and how it literally leads to um, clearing out of neighborhoods, of cultural institutions to create a sanitized space that is comfortable for this transnational elite class of art collectors. And that's the opposite of the kind of rich and thriving art world that we want. Yeah, that's kind of everywhere, right? The, the mm-hmm. creative cities, the development of art districts. Yeah, the, the gentrification of art. Just to end my interviews, I like to ask, what has been inspiring you lately so that people don't leave? Oh. Devoid of hope. <laughs> well, I, I'm going to say uh, my students, I'm so lucky to be teaching grad students, but also uh, the students that, that we work with at the Latinx Project. I think the new generation is really so advanced and mm. uh, really not less caught up on a lot of the isms of the past and mm-hmm. ready for action. They they are more uh, open to experimentation and taking mm. um, rather than, oh, well, academia has to be done this way or mm. only do academia. People are more, have more freedom about imagining futures for themselves and how they can make an impact. And yeah, that's that's been fantastic, I have to say. I'm also doing my classes very differently in the past, mm. past years. I've been mm. 
inviting more speakers, you know, I'm less worried about people reading stuff. Like I'm always like, <laughs> you could read this on a Saturday night, but I'm always like giving space for uh, artists to come talk about the work or people, uh, people in our community to address the students. And I, I, I think that I'm having more fun basically. Um, and that that's inspiring. I think we need to, we need to find more joy, right. In what we do in our daily lives, in our daily work. Do, do what we're doing, but try to find um, joy in it somehow. Because otherwise, yeah, uh, la cosa está dura. Right? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Hard out there, right? Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much, Professor Davila. That was inspiring, and I love your work. And I'm super honored that you took the time to be on the podcast today. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be part of the podcast. And to everybody listening out there, uh, thank you for spending time with us. And uh, uh, keep on listening to these fantastic states. So thank you. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Thank you for listening to Radio Cachimbona. Radio Cachimbona is an abolitionist podcast hosted and produced by Yvette Borja. The audio archives state repression and fierce migrant resistance in the southern Arizona borderlands and breaks down case law and politics from a leftist perspective. Yvette also prioritizes uplifting the voices and histories of Central Americans as a first-generation professional whose parents are Salvadoran immigrants. Again, if you all love this episode and want to support the podcast, becoming a patron at patreon.com slash Radio Cachimbona is the best way to do so for $3, $5, or $10 a month. You get early access to episodes like these or exclusive access to the lit reviews, which are book club-style chats. Also, another amazing, super, super, super helpful way to support the podcast is to leave a review and rating wherever you listen to podcasts, whether that be Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Leaving ratings and reviews really helps podcast with visibility. Thank you all so much for listening. I really, really appreciate it. Bye, Kachimbonas! <laughs>